All right. Well, first off, good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining in this evening. I think we've got uh, some good topics and some fun topics to kind of talk about tonight. Um, and uh, I, I know that I'm going to be talking about DRL. Uh, I got a chance to go to the DRL race here in Phoenix, and I think there's a lot of good things that they're doing, and I kind of wanted to talk about it. And um, Dan, I know, uh, went to a um, – what was it, a conference? It was a FAA seminar called Drone Flying for Hobbyists. And uh, this wasn't just a webinar, right? It was in person. Correct. It was an in-person at a air uh, at the hangar at a small airport not too far away. And the biggest thing was that it was presented by Kevin Morris, and his nickname is the FAA Drone Guy, or the FAA. So a uh, pretty important so person you... to talk to. Absolutely. So why don't you fill us in on kind of what happened? Uh, sure. I'll start off by saying, uh, hi, I'm my name's Dan. I've been, I've been with the FPV Freedom Coalition for... Uh, over a year now, and uh, last weekend I had the opportunity to go to the FAA's seminar on drone flying for hobbyists, like I said, with Kevin Morris, and I was really excited because I learned that Kevin was, uh, he's a local, he's from the, sort of within an hour or so of where I live, and he was the person behind writing the current uh, advisory circular that's out there, the, the one that says you can only fly to 400 feet for recreation, don't contact the towers anymore, all that stuff that happened earlier this year. Um, let's see, he, I'm trying to read my notes here and kind of follow along with what happened. And uh, feel free to jump in and ask me questions, too. Um, he said, let's see, what else did he do? He wrote and submitted the documentation for becoming a recognized CBO. So that is still in the process. He described it as uh, it's still going through the sausage making process at the FAA, but that'll be a very important one to watch out for coming up in the near future. Uh, he is also one of the four people that are reviewing that RFI for the administering the tests that we've been working on. And uh, let's see. And and we submitted yep. a response to the RFI sure. yes, yesterday morning. Um, and let's see. He mentioned that uh, he thought that the rules for becoming a recognized CBO probably wouldn't happen until the spring, if he had to guess, and that they would be presented... Um, and given we'd all be given a chance for comment on them before they were finalized. They'd be sort of published. I think I forgot exactly the words he used. He didn't say that they would be like an NPRM, but it would be something like a similar process to that where they would be published ahead of time, given it, giving the community a chance to give feedback and then they would take that feedback. Um, and then he spent quite a bit of time talking about the upcoming uh, safety test and he joked a bit that they're calling it the BAT or the B-A-T, and I now can't remember what BAT stands for. Uh, but he did not like the term, and he didn't want it called that, but he lost. Um, and the biggest two bits of information that I learned about that was that it's going to be a one-time test. So you take the test once, and supposedly you'll never have to take it again. I think he did say that for now, so in, unless the rules change, you just have to take the test once. 
and that there are about 23 to 25 test questions. Those questions have already been written. They were reviewed last Friday. And I did get a chance to talk to him afterwards and ask him about uh, who was involved in creating those test questions because the Senate said that the community needed to be involved. And he described it as in the industry was involved or industry partners were involved in creating the tests and that they had meetings. They went around the table at meetings and people wrote questions on the board and other people had the opportunity to cross off the questions they didn't like. So he definitely described that there was a process involved, but uh, I don't know. He wouldn't tell me who was the industry. We can all imagine who those people probably were, but uh, as far as I know, nobody has mentioned being part of those meetings. And so just to, to highlight what you're talking about, Dan, the, this is the uh, knowledge test for recreational UAS. And so this is Correct. what all of, all of us who are not 107 uh, certified uh, in the U.S. will need to take this test. And nice that it's one and done. It certainly does not sound too, uh, too difficult. And the, the RFI that we submitted was for the administration of the test. So it's possible that the FAA will contract out to a number of organizations, hopefully FPVFC will be one of them, who will be able to administer the test. Yep, and he mentioned uh, a few times that he used his dad and as an example that his dad bought a drone and he wants his dad to be able to take this test and pass the test. So that it's got to be easy to understand and easy for everyone to take. Uh, they definitely want it to be an online test. They don't want it to be like the Part 107 test where you have to go to a testing facility to take it. He doesn't want it to be something you have to pay $150 for, like the Part 107 test. So it all sounds, you know, fairly good uh, as far as that testing goes. Um, and the, this whole test is, to me, there are a number of uh, items that are uh, important in terms of how we are learning to work with uh, the FAA. This is a, a fantastic contact that Dan has identified. In addition, are going to the Drone Advisory Committee of the FAA and learning that uh, this uh, RFI was imminent, uh, cued us to watch the uh, the correct website, the FAA contractor opportunities page. Uh, so the uh, and then uh, standard, it's, it appears uh, of late, at least in the last year, with the FAA and uh, drone activities, they give a very short window to response. So it was a a five page uh, written, a narrative document that we had to create in a little over two weeks. And so uh, we got that done, we'll be happy to post it. And, uh, but it is, uh, it is, it does appear to be the, the process that the FAA, once they figure out, okay, we're gonna do this, then they tend to put a pretty short uh, lead time on the, on the tasks they have. So- Although it was interesting, they, they extended that by a week for an unknown reason. Oh really? Yeah, if you reload the the web page, it now says there's a new update and that you have another week to submit it. I uh, I just have to okay. assume somebody was running behind and convinced them to <laughs> to extend the date. I don't know. Yeah, an industry partner. <laughs> right, most likely. Yeah. Um he also did say that he expected those test questions to be 
file to be released late this fall. I assume they're not going to be made public, but they're going to be released to those um, to the designees. In, yeah the designees who are going to administer it. And he did fully understand that once they're released to designees, he expects the, all of the questions to be made public online with all the answers, and people can go out and memorize the questions and take the test. But they thought that you know that's going to happen no matter what, and at least people will hopefully learn something while they're memorizing the test questions. Um, well, I think honestly, yeah. even if even if they they do go live and and they get posted online and people memorize them, you know, at least the knowledge is in that person's head. Yeah, so, that's what they thought you know, too. Yeah, I, I don't see anything wrong with that either. So they're not putting NDAs on any of the designees. There was nothing in about that in the RFI uh, from from a, that kind of standpoint. And, it, and it'd be kind of tough yeah. because they you have to give the test. You have to be able to read the questions, and somebody could figure out all the right answers somehow. But in the in the uh, calling uh, process, if they uh, if we're selected, then uh, we're required to sign some type of uh, agreement with the FAA. Uh, we'll see if they've. Uh, I would imagine that they will embargo the the test um, at that point. So, some level of confidentiality agreement at the you know if we're selected to uh, to administer the test. Right. Oh, and he also did say that even though the test questions were done, I think what they're working on now is the education piece mm -hmm. and the study so study like guide. A, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, let's see what else is in my notes here. Uh, they, he used the government shutdown as part of the reason why they're so far behind schedule and recognizes that they can't use that as an excuse forever. <laughs> <laughs> but as we found out, that definitely delays things because we couldn't get our uh, nonprofit status through as quickly as we would have liked because of that as well. Right. One of the thing, points that, that we were talking about, Dan, that I found interesting was how um, delineated or how succinct the definition of 107 versus recreational. Recreational is for fun. And so, well, if I, if I take some photos for a, um, for a nonprofit with my drone, is that uh, recreational? No. Right. That's yep. People always always have questions over that and definitely try to pick that apart and find loopholes in it. And they're pretty consistent that, yeah, in, unless it's absolutely for fun, it's you require a part 107 for that flight. Right. Uh, he also- yeah. What happens if you're flying commercially and you have fun? <laughs> that's not allowed. No, we don't. That's why we call it work, right? Uh, he, he did say that you can, under your part 107, you can fly recreationally, which is sort of difficult to understand how that works, but you can do that. So you would just utilize the part 107 rules for your recreational flight. And I think it does give you a little more leeway for your recreational flight. Like, I believe 107s can still fly 400 feet over uh, a structure. A structure as opposed to Correct. just 400 feet. Uh, Correct. So, Correct. you know, it does give you some extra bonuses. It's, it's, uh, you can request you know, wave waivers. Exactly. So, you know, you do have that kind of going for you. And before, um, before Lance was, uh, 
release to the you know the the recreational users you could use lance for your recreational flight as well but now that's a non-issue so right he also expressed that he was a bit frustrated with the faa's drone zone website and how it makes it look like you don't have to register drones that are under 250 grams for part 107 when in fact you really do have to register everything if you're a part 107 and every drone you have to register unlike uh recreational pilots who have to register the pilot and you can put the same number on every every drone and the reason he was so so dan you did yeah. uh, also mention uh you clarified once and for all about um following the rules on sub 250 right correct he definitely laid that out perfectly clear that even though the registration is for 250 and up all the rules like someone in the crowd even asked if i fly my tiny whip in my backyard does that count and he said yes absolutely like if you read his body language he understands that it's kind of silly and ridiculous but as a member of the faa he had to say yes this that's what the rules are it includes everything and it was interesting that someone asked well what if i fly that same uh, you know micro inside I yeah, was, right. And I, and I was surprised that that question came up, and that given the you know pretty yeah, bright, you, you know, would think well they in, would understand well that audience. the FAA doesn't have any jurisdiction over the indoors. And he did talk a little bit right. about uh, DRL. Uh, this was Saturday. DRL was happening Sunday. He was leaving like an hour or two after this presentation to head down to Arizona to meet with DRL. And he commented that if they were to open the dome at Chase Stadium, it would be a whole different ball game. <laughs> How interesting! Yep. How interesting! Yep. So, um, you is might that like the, is that like the is that like the perfect segue? It kind of is, actually. I was about um, to say, mind if I kind of yeah, take I, over? Yeah, I would like to say two other little tiny things. He did did mention that the reason why he was so frustrated with the website talking about 250 grams is that a a well known uh, drone manufacturer is coming out with a sub 250 gram drone very soon. And he wanted to get the website updated before they did so. And, <laughs> and that I also got a chance to talk with uh, Katie, who was the UAS program administrator for the Minnesota Department of Transportation. And I know the Minnesota Department of Transportation has a lot of special rules about drones in our state. And so it's also good to make contact with the Department of Transportation folks as well. And she also... Um gave us the dates of uh, the drone safety week which is november 4 through 10 and yep. the weekend of uh, of that week not sure which end uh will uh, will be for recreational uh, uas so this is the faa working with a, a number of uh, organizations across the country uh pushing for uh, safety and uh, uh you know hashtag uh, drones are good type of uh, messaging and uh very excited that uh yeah she's uh, happy happy to work with us and wants to make a partnership and yeah make sure we can work together and spread the word and all that good stuff uh, i sent her a thank you message and she wrote back to me pretty quickly um yeah right. did, anybody I, ask, did anyone ask why they don't have a shielded operations provision like new zealand for example which would simplify things so much in terms of people flying tiny whips in their backyard no i didn't but i should definitely write that down as something i should ask him if i ever get the chance in the future i was going to say something about that i mean not in the same way because my curious part is well what is my son supposed to do 
he's he's 12 years old and he's right. a really good pilot but that's a really good question i think we should all address is what's going to happen when a bunch of kids like get a hold of their parents drones and break some huge federal laws on accident and like the parents get pinged for it like we're gonna have to yeah that's what it is we're gonna have to secure these drones like they're guns and so kids can't get a hold of them and turn on switches on because they're super smart and do something horribly illegal on accident and get the parents in trouble like you guys could all be liable like i, I think okay. uh possibly if anything were like that to happen or if other people you know were to give advice to certain people to go off and have their kids you know like think it's totally fine they come at us saying look like you know, they told us it was safe like this and no one explained it. So I think having um, public information about this, some kind of PSA, could be actually really vital to keeping a lot of people safe. And uh, especially legally, um, if like kids were to accidentally, um, you know, get a drone. Um, I think you like should, should also push them to look at Canada where they've got that no prescriptive regulation for sub 250s. Again, it simplifies things immensely. And it, it also means that you can have kids flying these things. It, basically criminalizing the unsupervised use of drones by children, even small ones, tiny ones, is is ridiculous. I mean, you're killing a hobby. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I went out with my little planes and flew them at the local park when I was eight, nine years old. So the unintended consequences are quite significant. And I Bruce, think- Bruce, one of the, one of the res to respond to your questions, this is Dave, to respond to one of your questions about uh, shielded operations, the, um, the, Drone Advisory Committee subgroup on uh, remote identification. Um, it's very likely that uh, the FAA will hopefully uh, take on the ASTM F-38 committee. So the American Society of, um, what's the T? Trades and Measures, I think. It's a, an international organization, even though the first letter is American, but it's the people who bring us the, uh, what's the uh, the mass of a kilogram, the weight of a pound, the length of a meter. Uh, they've put together a standard after a year and a half of work. And uh, one of the, uh, some of the work reflects the uh, FAA uh, arc in that it is um, a tiered level of uh, uh, risk and uh, regulation. And so there's quite a bit that's possible for a non-equipped UAS, which we would uh, define as a, an FPV of today without a GPS or uh, a, an RC aircraft. And so uh, the idea is uh, that that would be, you would be able to uh, use your mobile phone, use something like Lance and identify that you are, you are requesting a flight plan within a polygon you get back a, uh, a stated um, uh, max um, uh, al uh, altitude, and you're good to go. And so it's uh, it would provide us with a uh, a dynamic uh, shielded operations and better uh, under a, a 400 foot uh, ab um, above uh, ground level. The whole thing about shielded operations is it doesn't require anyone to do anything except stay in a shielded operation. You don't need clearance because you're not in navigable airspace. If you're not flying navigable airspace, there is no reason for air traffic control or any other um, aviation user to even need to be aware of your presence. That's shielded operation. It's so simple. We're not talking about 400 feet. We're just talking about to the height of the tallest object within 100 meters. And so they need to take that on board because they don't want to make too much work for themselves. One of the problems I believe we have is that under regulations in all countries, drone operators must give way to manned aircraft. So we need to know where they are. But 
under those rules, they don't need to know where we are because the obligation is on us to keep out of their way, not the other way around. So, right. and it's yeah, I think so that's, yeah, I, I, I think that's pretty clever that the DJI is incorporating ADSB in all of their drones above 250 grams for just your point, so that as the drone operators, we can understand where a, uh, a manned aircraft is flying. That's right. He also okay. talked about ADSB and how, well, and briefly, briefly touched on remote ID, saying that. ADSB is not coming to drones because it was totally swamped the system because they're, I forget, he threw out the numbers of how many more drones there are out there than manned aircraft. They're right. definitely well yeah. aware of that too. Right. Oh, and, and to your point, Bruce, I mean, that's what DJI, you know, is they agree with that, your view completely. And so DJI is adding an ADSB receiver, <laughs> not, a, not a transmitter. So it's not ADSB out. I also wanted to point out that on the, the uh, issue of people who are under the age of 13 flying, I believe the FAA wants people who are under the age of 13 to fly. They have no issue with that. The current reason that they can't allow people under the age of 13 to register their drones is because of the COPA, the Child Online Protection Act, I believe, where they can't take personal information for people who are under the age of 13. And they are actually looking for solutions right. to that problem. But I can't. He can't even fly his tiny. Like he has a tiny whoop, and he can't even fly it outside if he wanted to. Correct. Or like not without you know, supervision. I, even right, but I mean, so I can I can use Lance and request that he can fly. Yes. Okay. All right. So he. Can I fly I would say mind. I would say as long as you're registered, and. Yes. And the the in our in our response to the RFI, one of the things that we posited forward is, you know, anybody under the age of 13, because of the COPA problems, um, or the COPA regulations, I should say, not problems, but because uh, they're there for a reason. But yeah. uh, one of the things that we kind of posited forward is that anybody under the age of 13 wouldn't be required to take the test, but would you know, have to be supervised by somebody who had taken and passed the test. So you as the parent could supervise your child, you know, assuming, you know, let's say the test goes forward with that, that stipulation, you could supervise your child flying. Um, you would be able to make the request, you know, if you're in, in a position where you need to utilize Lance, um, but you would also be the responsible party if anything happened. Does that make sense? Yeah, this really, really discriminates against like single parent families where mum's got a job and she she doesn't want to have to sit the test just so that her 10 year old kid can fly his toy drone in the backyard. I mean, this is it's really unnecessarily restrictive. And what is the what are they going to achieve from this? How many sub 13 year olds have tried to bring down airliners with a Chearson CX-10? I mean, seriously. I'm sorry, but I, <laughs> I, I, live, I live in a state where there was a freaking what what's his name strapped the freaking him and his dad strapped a gun to their drone. Well, I, I, I see where I, I see where where Bruce is going with this, and you know it's something that we probably do need to voice with the FAA. I I do get it. Um, I you know uh, it's something that just definitely needs to be brought forward. Yeah, I put those two things in my notes to try to ask Kevin to clarify both of those things. What his stances on shielded operations and how does the how do things work for children under 13 and where do they want that to go 
And do they yeah. realize that, that strapping uh, guns to drones isn't a drone problem? It's a gun problem. <laughs> it is. It, no, I, I I agree. It was it was actually the father's problem. That was that was the whole problem. I mean, as it turns out for Connecticut, right. but I mean, you know, just, I, I wasn't trying to be like argumentative or anything like that. I was just kind of making a point that I don't know. People have already done it because humans are humans. All right. So. You know, I just, um, there was a question I was going to ask you, Dan, and I forgot. Well, if it comes back to you, just let me know. <laughs> Otherwise, wow. we could segue into the DRL, and in the middle of we you can. thinking, you can probably think of it. Absolutely. <laughs> and we'll just take a, you know, a tangent break. Okay, so, um, I did get a chance to go to DRL, and, you know, one of the things I will say is that it was well put together. Um, I don't know how many of you have watched DRL before. Hopefully, you know, some or most of you have. Um, so the big focus for them is obviously making a flashy presentation. But one of the things I will say, this was their first public event. And um, two things that I, I, I kind of really want to commend them for is, number one, they made the admission extremely cheap. So um, I think the price of a ticket was $15. Uh, and I think there were coupon codes going around. I know I use a coupon code that gave me 50% off of that. So um, needless to say, they had seven or 8,000 seats available. And I would say there were very few, if any, that were not taken. So. Um, and from that standpoint, it made, if anything, it made nothing but a extremely positive spin on what what drones are capable of and the fun that can be had out of it. Um, they made the event very fun. They they kept it moving forward. Um, I think there was only one race that they had to reset. Uh, or no, there was two two races that they had to reset just due to technical problems. But because they were prepped and ready to go, I mean, they have uh, 600 drones sitting in the back ready to go. Uh, so if anybody breaks one, it's immediately out on a pedestal and set up and paired to a pilot, and it's good to go. Um, they manufactured or they created the course that I would say about 70% of it was completely in front of the audience. Um, so that people could see what was going on. Obviously, um, if you've seen DRL, you know they put about a thousand uh, LEDs on these quads, and you could see them from the opposite side of the arena. Um, so it just made the whole experience much more enjoyable than most races I've ever gone to, um, because you could see what was happening. Uh, you had uh, Tony or Canoodle, who was. Uh, um, uh, commentating each race on the fly. Um, so people understood what was going on. Now, to answer your question, Dan, they did have a no goggle rule. Um, and two reasons behind that. Uh, number one, they don't operate on the 5.8 gigahertz system. I don't know what system they do operate on, but I did read a post earlier from Wild Willie saying that they don't operate on that spectrum, so it wouldn't have been uh, effective anyway. Um, and two, I think they just wanted to keep uh, the 
radio frequency base as, as clear as possible. So the goggles um, don't transmit. And if they're that, not on 5.8, what harm is there in taking goggles in? Right. So I don't know what system they were using. Um, I do know that um, there was, I, I don't know why they, did, they had a no goggle rule, but beyond that, beyond them not having 5.8, that's the only thing I could tell you. Um, we did, uh, my friend and I did message Tony uh, beforehand asking if we could bring them and he said they won't allow you to bring them. So yeah, we didn't bring would, them. I would imagine Ooh. they don't, they don't want even DVR um, of the, you know, to go to get posted moments out because I mean the, yeah, you know, their in total IP is the uh, uh, is the event. Absolutely. Yeah, but then again, who, but then again, who brings if their goggles without a drone anyway? Well, I mean, Tyler. I've gone to races and I bring my goggles so that I can see from the pilot's perspective. I've done that. Um, that's not a rare thing to do. Um, so, I mean, especially if you've got a buddy who's racing or or anything. So. One of the statements must be true. If, if, if they don't want you to bring 5.8 goggles because of the IP issues, but they're not operating on 5.8, that, that doesn't that doesn't gel. There's something that, that story doesn't fit. All right. Yeah, but if, if you have like the 2.4 rapid fire module, which is what I suspect they might be operating on, then you can't really change from just look at, you can't really tell from just looking at it. So, That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I, I don't know what system they're operating on. They did, however. What I will say is in the audience, they did pick out uh, families and groups of kids. They had some spare goggles um, that uh, people got to wear for all the different races. So new people were chosen for the different races. New people got to experience the goggles. So they did have that. Um, but you, uh, to be honest, you didn't really need them. Uh, you know, I will say that I had wished that there were screens up. Um, so you could see that pilot perspective, but um, at the same time, the race was literally right in front of the audience. So, uh, you know, you, you got to see some of that excitement and, you know, the, the gates were all lit up. The I, I posted some pictures a little while ago with Man. it. Um, the gates were all lit up. The drones were all lit up. So, and it was very obvious who was flying what they let, you know, each pilot had their own color um and they called it out and and the commentation was really good now the second thing i i think that was really kind of interesting is they have created an app or they had created an app for the experience so before each heat um you could pick uh who you thought would come in for second and third and um through that, if you got them correct, then you got points, and then they would post who's leading the leaderboard. So they, they made it very audience interactive at the same time. Um, plus, they employed the uh, normal folks who uh, kind of get out into the audience for the Diamondbacks games. And those people had cameras, and, and they'd go out to the crowd and, and talk with people. And you could tell there were a lot of people who had never experienced drones before. Um, there was a good group of people uh, especially from the AZ drone scene that were there, but a lot of it was just families, you know, and little kids. And, and it almost reminded me of kind of like going to uh, like a, a circus or a show, you know, where all ages were kind of there and um, people were really getting into it. And uh, you could tell like you had fathers who were kind of questioning their wives, like, 
you know, can I get a drone? Yeah. yeah, for real. So um, it was, it really, overall, I think it gave a really positive spin on drones for the Phoenix area. And I really, really, really do hope that the DRL or, or the other organizations like them are able to kind of mimic this format and, and bring this kind of hype and excitement and educational experiences uh, to other cities around the country and around the world. Uh, because I, I think it did nothing but good things. And um, so overall, I really enjoyed the experience. I got to meet up with uh, some some YouTube personalities and uh, with Rotor Riot and other people that um, I've talked to online and and that kind of thing. So it was really kind of a gathering place for people who both were experiencing it for the first time and people who have been doing it for years. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time during the first couple of heats talking to the people in front of me who I had no idea who they were um, and explaining kind of how, how it all worked and how the course was set up and how other races work and um, what kind of power they were talking about. And, you know, all the different things that one person would educate somebody who's, you know, in the uninitiated for drones would have a conversation about. And it kind of kind of spread to the 10 people around me. And we all kind of got into a conversation about it. So it was a really great experience. And I know that conversation probably happened 100 times across that entire arena. And but... I think that was part of why Kevin was going to talk to DRL was how can DRL help the FAA spread education <laughs> about drone safety? Absolutely. And, um, you know, they didn't exclude anybody from anything. And that was the nice part. You know, before the races, the pilots were out meeting the crowd. Um, they weren't, you know, behind some screen or anything like that. Um, they were literally out talking, taking selfies, um, just meeting with people. And, you know, it didn't make it feel unapproachable. And that's what I think they did right. I think they made everything feel like this is you know totally something that my kids can get into or i can get into or anybody can get into and it just really felt nice you know and they didn't gouge anything you know i got a t-shirt of course because i'm not going to go anywhere without getting a t-shirt but you know it wasn't like your average concert where a band's t-shirt cost you forty dollars you know t-shirt was 17 bucks you know they weren't there i i don't think to 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 really make a bunch of money they were there to kind of test the experience i hope and 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 kind of bring that to hopefully they it went the way they wanted it to and bring that experience to other people around the country and around the world and it's gonna start to air i think in december yeah i think december 29th is when the phoenix episode uh airs mm-hmm. um and uh, you know i think overall you know it was a great experience. I, I would definitely go again, especially at, at $15 of tickets. Or actually, I think I paid eight fifty for a ticket. And um, really, you know, I, I had fun. It was long. I think the, the racing started at 6.30, um, and it wasn't over. We didn't leave the arena until 11 p.m. So, I mean, it was a full evening of fun and excitement and education and um, sharing and, and all that kind of stuff. So that I really, 
That sounds early compared to what their normal time schedule is from what I've heard where they usually fly and race overnight almost. So um, I do know that they were racing all weekend uh, for um, either separate shooting. And and, and I, I don't want to – I can't draw any conclusions, but I do know that they really kind of pushed along the show. Uh, so I'm curious if – part of it was actually just exhibition um the races that they were doing and then they had the real races over the weekend and and whatnot but they were there for several days so and i do know racing was going on before the show so um but at the same time it, it the excitement was there the the uh anticipation of who was going to win was there so um, whether whether the the show in front of the audience was exhibition or not, I don't think that really matters. I think it's what they did beyond that. And I so. will say, I I feel like I've seen a small influx of people asking questions about getting into FPV since the first DRL aired a couple weekends ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, most definitely. I've heard the most people I've ever heard talk about DRL lately. So you know, whatever you know. <laughs> issues that that drl has had and you know that's really none of my business i really think that the whole experience was good and the one thing that i will say that they also did is you know and and dan you posted it earlier is they got out and, and got with the media and you know experience you know shared that experience from that standpoint and it wasn't a negative drone story you know it was it was about what's going on what do we do you know, how do we do it? That kind of thing. So well, we right. all need to do that. Yep. Every time Absolutely. I see one of those stories, I want to get it out there and get as many people to watch it and click on it and get those news organizations some metrics to say, hey, these stories generate some interest. Absolutely. Well, that's easier to do in the cities. But where I live out in the kind of the rules, we just had an air show, AMA sponsored air show. And the biggest comment that I heard, because I, I had a bunch of extra hoods and I, I let people go up and took them for flights. The biggest comment I heard from parents and the general public was, this is way different than we hear. So the education starts on our part, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, and I've been kind of saying this for a long time, is that we as drone pilots, if we're having a big race, we need to start inviting the media we need to start inviting these people that can help spread that story yeah um, i got a good i got a good write-up uh guys um i got a, a picture in the paper with the local club um of course their words were teaching them um you know in in, in a in in anything other than fpv um i, I would have i would have liked to have had that but virtual reality is what they used right it right. works. It, that's that's what the kids are used to hearing. Yeah, they are, and I mean, it makes sense. But you know, I think that a lot of you know, from the standpoint of um, getting our stories out there and getting the good out there, a lot of that's got to fall on us. You know, there, it's not going to just happen. So, um, one of these just, days, I'll talk to you a little bit more about some of the things that I where I'm doing here up in Washington State. I live up at the northwest tip of washington state and, absolutely uh, I'd love to in port angeles so I'll, I'll give you some um things that i'm trying to do uh with some junior pilots uh boys girls club member uh, after school projects like, stuff like that absolutely I'd definitely like to hear about it 
So, well, thank you. But, um, I mean, that's kind of that I'm, I'm going to get off the soapbox now, but you know, I think honestly, uh, DRL did a great job in, in number one, promoting the event and number two, you know, really showcasing the positive side of, of drone racing to at least the Phoenix area, you know, and I think that nothing but good can come from that. So, um, I just kind of, I, I think if you, if they do do more shows, take a minute, you know, make it an evening, go, go see it because, you know, I know a lot of you have been to drone races before, you know what it's about, but, um, the way that they interacted with the public, the way that they put on the show was really, uh, kind of something to be proud of for our yeah, community. So gosh, um, this is Leland again. I, I actually had one, uh, have a kid here in my hometown of Port Angeles that, uh, almost made it to Saudi Arabia. It's, 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 it's not so much the DRL is that it's the uh, media portrayal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, but on the flip side, the way that DRL handled the media, I think was perfect. So, um, but anyway, I'm going to kind of leave it at that. Uh, I just kind of wanted to share that experience and I'll see what I can do to get some of my uh, pictures and, and, and videos kind of up there, but it was, it was really quite the experience. So I didn't get to go behind the scenes. I didn't get to do all that, but um you know, beyond that, you know, for me, it was just experiencing it as a general public experiences it, you know, it was something positive. So anywho, that's, that's all I have. Um, Dan, I still don't remember what I was going to ask you. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> Wait until the middle of yeah, the night. It'll happen eventually. <laughs> but I will say that uh, I collected a couple of great questions from people today, and I want everyone to think about if they had the chance to talk to uh, the FAA's drone guy, what are some other questions you would ask him if you were talking to him in person? And if I get that chance or if I can email him some questions, I'll definitely pass them on. Hmm. I Honestly, I think, and you probably already have these written down, Dan, but um, Bruce's kind of point to you know, young kids being able to to fly i think shielded operations should definitely be on there yep, um, those are the two i've got written down right now yep um you know i actually one of the questions i just thought of did it seem like um what was his name again kevin yep kevin, kevin morris yeah did it seem like kevin was a drone pilot himself he didn't really talk about that but he definitely seemed like he understood everything and because I talked to him when I first walked in the door and introduced myself, mentioned I was with the FPV Freedom Coalition, explained a little bit about what we were. During his talk, he mentioned things like uh, CBOs, like the AMA or a FPV drone group. So right. he definitely knows a lot about what's going on. He, he could rattle off all the regulations, knew everything by heart, was uh, great at speaking in general. Uh, and... I assume he flies somewhat, but he definitely has a has family members that do. We talked about if that. I invite him out. <laughs> yeah. In, invite him out to uh, do some FPV. Yeah, that's a great idea. Hopefully <laughs> we could do idea. that. That is a very great idea. Yeah, there are definitely some large fun fly get-togethers in his neighborhood that we could invite him to. 
but no yeah. night flying and no flying over people. <laughs> Recreationally, no, you can fly. Recreational, we can. Uh, and Absolutely. no flying under the no flying under the influence. <laughs> I fly under the influence all the time. Oh. It's called adrenaline. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Excellent. That's the way to be. All right, so. Uh, guys, uh, thank you for being here this evening. If you do have more questions that, uh, we can kind of push to Kevin's, uh, side of the, uh, of the world, um, I send them to us because, uh, we will definitely send those on. Um, I do, I do also kind of want to reiterate that, uh, Dave did submit our RFI, um, and him and, Dan did a lot of great work on that, and hopefully uh, we can kind of bring uh, bring that uh, to the FVVFC so that uh, we can kind of make it easy for everybody. So, um, Dave, do you want to kind of touch on that before we roll out? Or uh, I just wanted to add that uh, our contact us uh, capability on the on our website is functioning, and so uh, if you have uh, any additional questions and you you don't know, want to use Discord. Uh, you just remember the website and contact us. That'll get to us that way as well. Um, let's see. Thoughts on the on the RFI is uh, I think it's important that it is uh, as uh, Dan was describing. The FAA has divided the work into two pieces. One is the creation of the content or the questions, and second is the administration. So this RFI that we just uh, submitted was, hey, we'd like to be one of those, um, hopefully, community-based organizations providing or administering or delivering a web-based test. It'll be a one and done, so you take it once. And this is for recreational uh, uh, UAS pilots, and this is part of the um, 2018 FAA Reauthorization Act. So this was a man, one of the mandates by uh, by Congress that the FAA is is getting done. And welcome any, yeah. or as I said, it, we'll it's probably good to post up the. <clears throat> yep, it's good Go to ahead. reiterate that that this is not something the FAA dreamt up. It's not something that they said they really, really want. They they are told by Congress to do it. Yep. So, I think with that, thank you all for being here. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, let us know. And on that, we will say good night. All right. Thank good you night. very much. Good night. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Thank you. All right.